Open with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you have a Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to look at the first few verses of, of John this morning. And so we've been for the last, uh, I was going to say 40 days, but during the 40 days of Lent, we've been looking at the humanity of Jesus because we believe that, that it's not only the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus that matters, but there's something to learn of his humanity. Um, that when God redeems us, he redeems us as whole people. And, and the scriptures would say even in Romans chapter 8 that God is conforming us into the image of who? Christ. Right? So, so as the Spirit works in us, we are taking on the image of Christ, the reflection of Christ, obviously in very imperfect ways because I've been around you and you've been around me and we don't always look and smell like Jesus all the time, do we? Any amens? I thought I'd go over bigger. Okay, it's like, no, I actually do look like Jesus. Well, you're a liar. So... Um, and actually, the Bible tells you you are. So, um, no, but, but there's something to learn from his life and how he lived his life. And so we've, we've looked at these things. We've looked at ways in which he's engaged with people and the ways in which he, he was a, a word-saturated man and, and banked his life on the promises of God. And we're to do the same and obey that word, not just be hearers of the word, um, but, but also to be doers of that same word. Because we believe as we obey God's word, we are living into ultimate reality and how the world is, is wired. And, and we looked at prayer and, and how Jesus was... A, a man who is dependent on prayer and dependent on God for everything. And we're to be dependent because we know life is incomplete and life is hard and we need things. We need daily bread. We need the grace to forgive other people. We need the, the, the ability and the strength and the power to walk as God would have us walk. Um, we looked at uh, just our character, our virtue, the way we, we, we live our lives, how we interact with other people. You see Jesus, I mean, just amazing how he loved children and people and the downcasts and, and, and how, how God is, is changing us from the inside, inside out. And we, the last couple of weeks, Andy talked about being a, a, a spirit-empowered disciple, one who's walking in dependence in the spirit, becoming uh, the, with the marks of the spirit, gentleness and meekness and love and joy and self-control. And then last week, he talked about being a compassionate disciple, loving our neighbors, considering others better than ourselves. Now, this morning, we're going to look at John chapter 1, and we're going to talk about being an incarnational disciple and what that even means. So look with me, uh, John chapter 1. Let me read that first, and then we'll, we'll jump in to the text this morning. Because what we're looking at is what do we do now? How do we live our lives? After God redeems us, after God makes us his own, is it just a ticket to heaven? Is it, is it just waiting on death? I mean, you know, death and taxes, right? I mean, is that, is that it? And we get to go to heaven, or is there more that God would want to do in and through us as his people, as his church, in his kingdom? So let's read John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the, the word of God for us uh, this morning. And so where I want to, to start this morning is with the incarnation. Okay, I, I know when we say incarnation, incarnational disciple, we get kind of nervous because what I want to say first is that the incarnation of Jesus is a once and only human historical event, okay? We are not talking about that, that somehow we're to incarnate ourselves or some kind of weird voodoo that's happening, but the, the, the fact that Jesus has come in the flesh, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, born just like you and I would have been born, lived in a family just how you and I have lived in a family, was worked a job just like you and I work a job. This Jesus, this God has come and incarnated himself, the second person of the Trinity, and become flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, Moved in, as Eugene Peterson says, moved into the neighborhood, the incarnation. And it's an important teaching, it's an important doctrine of the church. Because without the incarnation, there is no cross, there is no resurrection. Without the incarnation, it essentially says this, that the world is a closed system and there's no hope for anyone on this planet in the past, present, or future. If God does not enter in, if God doesn't come and dwell among us, if God doesn't come and be with us, there's no, no hope for anyone. There's no hope for anyone. And so to understand this Emmanuel, the God with us, I think it's important when we think about being an incarnational disciple, it starts with looking at the incarnation of Jesus. What does it say to us about God? And then in light of that, what does that mean in how we live our, our lives together? So, so I want to do that. I want to look at um, just four things uh, real quick that, 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 uh, that the incarnation says about God's character. I'm going to give you like a little short little definition of what that means for our living as God's people, and then I'm going to give you three very concrete um, implications of that, okay? So that's, that's where we're going to go with this. And, and again, we're looking at John chapter 1. It's the, the Christmas story of John's gospel, if you will. Um, all the other stories start with, you know, Jesus being born in, in Bethlehem, born to Mary and Joseph. Um, but this one goes all the way back to eternity, all the way back to creation, That this word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word is the Logos, Jesus. He was the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him not only um, was not anything made that was made, in him was life and the life was the light of of men. So so John goes all the way back. He's drawing on the creation, creation, uh, Genesis chapter 1. This God, Jesus Christ, was not only uh, God, but he's always been God. He, He goes all the way back and says he was the creator. Everything was made by him and through him. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Everything's about this Christ. When he comes in the flesh 2,000 years ago, he's always been the creator God who spoke the universe into existence, who spoke your life into existence, who made man in his image. By his word, he has spoken everything into um, existence. So that's where John goes. He goes way, 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 way back. But what does it teach us? What does the incarnation teach us? There's a, there's a couple things that it teaches us about God when we really think about it for a moment. There's probably 8 million things I could say about this. Um, this is kind of swimming in the kiddie pool, if you will. Um, 
But the first thing I think it teaches us very clearly is that Jesus' incarnation is about God pursuing his people. It's about God pursuing his people. Because even though John starts with the word and he's always been and he's the creator and everything was made through him, he, doesn't, he isn't satisfied with just being God who rules and reigns and creates. He actually enters in. He takes his own medicine. He moves into the neighborhood. Notice what he says in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The incarnation is about a God who pursues a people for his name. He enters in, he comes to his people, a people that want nothing to do with him. That even his own people, Israel, said, that's not the Messiah we're looking for. The Messiah we're looking for is a political ruler. He's a, he, he bears the sword, right? He's a, he's a political activist. It's a, it's a, a king like King David who's going to come and wipe out our enemies. We're a, a, a oppressed people. They can't be this Jesus, this suffering servant, even though they would have known Isaiah really well that this Messiah was going to be a suffering servant, that he was going to bore the sins of the world. But yet they were looking for someone else. But yet here's this God who comes in the flesh as the Son of God to pursue a people for his name. And that's always been God's story. That's always been God's plan. We can go old school and do Deuteronomy chapter um, 7. Probably one of my favorite Old Testament texts when I think about who God is and how he pursued me and how he pursues you. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. We could stay right there for all afternoon and day or all of eternity. That God not only would come to us, but he'd say, you're my treasured possession. Like, think about that. We don't usually think about treasure, but I know my kids, they've gone through that, the pirate phase. Any of your kids gone through that? If, yeah, boys, maybe girls do too. I don't know. But, you know, they, they have this treasure and they have the pirate booty in there, right? I mean, they just they love saying that word. We just can't get out of, that, out of the vernacular, but that's a whole other sermon. But, but God sees us as this treasured possession. It's not just I put up with you. It's not just I, I have to get around you. I guess I could do that. But I actually have set my affections on you as a treasured possession. God doesn't deal in generalities. He always deals in specifics. And he knows your name. Humanity is not just this nebulous, no-face thing, but God knows every hair on your head or lack thereof. He knows your name. You're a treasured possession. But but notice that, that God's affection on us has nothing to do with because of our morality or because of our goodness or because we're awesome. <laughs> It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and shows you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I, I need us to hear that time and time again. God set his love on you and it affects you not because you're strong, not because you're might. Israel was none of those things. But it's because God is faithful. He's the one. He's a covenant-making God. He's a God of relationships. He's always making promises to his people. And guess who always keeps his end of the bargain? God. We're not good at keeping our promises. Amen? 
That's why the Old Testament's full of language like calling us whores, that we're in bed with other gods. But, but here's God, I love you because I love you. It's not anything you could do. It's not anything you could earn. It's not because of your might. Israel had none of those things. But I love you because I love you because the incarnation speaks to a God who pursues a people for his name. That's always been his plan. And even a people, as John says, that wanted nothing to do with him. And then John three sixteen, you should know that by heart. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him would, should not perish but have eternal life. He didn't come to condemn the world. God gave. God is a giver. He didn't give it reluctantly. He didn't give his son reluctantly. And then it says whoever believed. Now that's not just cognitive sense. That's trust. That has a relational reality to it. The Greek word is, is pistoios. It's, it's this idea of a trust relationship, a living relationship. It's not just saying, yeah, I know Jesus did some things and maybe I should say yes to that, but it's a, it's a longing, it's a closeness, it's a clinging to this trust relationship that anyone who would believe could have eternal life, a new quality of life now and forever, not just a ticket to heaven. But see, he pursues a people, even a people who are in rebellion, and he's always pursued. I, I love when you go all the way back to Genesis, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Remember, they're in the garden. I mean, God's given them everything. They don't need anything. They have perfect relationship with God, with his creation, with each other, right? Everything is good. Everything's great. It lasts for about two chapters. And then Satan comes and tempts them and says, you can be like God. You don't need God. You can find your worth, your desires, your hope, everything else outside of them, even though everything's in the garden, even though everything you need is right here. And what I find astounding is we already see little glimpses of God's grace and mercy, even after God rebelled, even after God's people rebelled against him. As he comes and they're naked and they feel shame for the first time. And then he clothes them. He clothes them. He, he, he gives them clothing. Like, I mean, back in the way back when, I mean, some kind of leather loincloth situation. I don't know. Now, yes, there was punishment. They had to banish them outside the garden, yes. But then he says that what we call the proto evangelion, the, the proto gospel, the first gospel, that, that Jesus is going to come and crush the head of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. That even though the world has gone astray, even though people are in rebellion, even people don't love me with all their heart, they don't, they don't need me, they don't like me, they don't want anything, I'm just an inconvenience, even though I'm going to be faithful to the end because I've made promises to my people and I'm going to pursue a people for his name, that's exactly what the incarnation says to us. Jesus isn't, and God isn't just making platitudes. He's taking his own medicine. I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you in time and space and history. I love what J.R.R. Tolkien said. Lord of the Rings guy. You may have known him, heard about him. He's also a devout Christian and, and wrote some amazing things. And here's what he says about God's grace and his pursuit of us. And the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase with unhurrying and steady pace. So does God follow the fleeting soul by his divine grace. 
And though in sin or in human love away from God, it seeks to hide itself. Divine grace follows after, unwearingly follows ever after till the soul feels its pressure, forcing it to turn to him alone in that never ending pursuit, the hound of heaven. He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care what you believe. He doesn't care about your hangups about the existence of God. God is one who pursues a people for his name. And you know what? I'm so thankful for that. Some of us would say, you know, I'm just, you know, well, you know, what about freedom? What about free will? I mean, come on, pastor. I mean, a God isn't, that, isn't a God a monster if he, if he wants to invade my life? What if I don't want him in there? What, I mean, I have to keep my free will. I can choose him, right? Oh, no. It's so beautiful that the scriptures don't teach that because you don't even know what you need and how you need it. That's making a lot of assumptions. A lot of assumptions about what your heart and your soul actually need and, how, and who God is. You're saying a lot of things. I'd rather keep my freedom intact, but I'm dying in the river. I'm dying in the ocean, and I need someone to throw me a lifeboat, and I need someone to redeem me and save me. I'm so glad God doesn't give a rip about my freedom. So glad that he came and found me even when I didn't want him. And that's a lot of our stories. He says, Ryan, I love you even though you don't know my love yet. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with, with me. It's the hound of heaven. So Jesus' incarnation is about a God pursuing a people, even a people in rebellion. But also Jesus' incarnation is also about a God identifying with his people. He doesn't shout from heaven, believe me, trust me, love me, worship me. He actually identifies with his people as a human We saw that in John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the one son from the father full of grace and and truth. This this word dwelt among us means to tabernacle among us. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament when God's presence would would have been in the the tabernacle and in the temple. This idea that, that God moves into the neighborhood. He actually takes on flesh, your flesh, the same as my flesh. God didn't have some kind of special heavenly flesh. The same kind of bodies you and I have, the same kind of broken bodies. He experienced the things that you and I experienced. He experienced pain and loss and sorrow and abandonment. He, he experienced the, the, what it's like to be hungry and thirsty. He experienced what it's like uh, to, to feel pain and sorrow and suffering. I can imagine he hit his finger many times with a hammer as a carpenter. And he didn't go, well, I'm God. That didn't hurt. Probably, oh, I am sinless, so I can't drop a curse word right here, but I don't know how that went, but. But to say he, he, he dwelt among us as a human, that's why Jesus and God are relatable. If you've seen, as John 14 says, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, if you've seen the Father, you've seen the Son. If you want an exact representation, exact portrait, and an exact picture, as Hebrews 1 would say, we look to Jesus. But see, he identifies with us because he takes on our flesh. It's a little bit what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. And I have a lot of texts this morning, so if you want them later, just email me. I'll send them to you just so you don't get lost. Psalm 103.14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Think about that. 
Because Jesus took on flesh, because he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, he moved into the neighborhood, he knows your frame. Like, isn't that the greatest news this morning? We always say dumb things like, God doesn't understand me or people don't understand me. Are you kidding me? You're saying Jesus doesn't understand you? He knows you better than you. He knows your frame. He knows your limitations. He knows your weakness. So why do we always try to be heroic? We always have to try to be something, right? We have to say, no, no. I mean, especially as men, right? If you're a dude in here, can't show weakness. Not in our culture. Can't shed a tear. Can't have any emotions, right? You've got to be emotionally, you know, cut off. But, but what's so beautiful about Jesus is that he says, I know your hopes, I know your aspirations, I know your pains, I know your longings, I know your needs, I know even what you know need to pray before you even pray it. I know all your failures, all your sins. I've been there. And that's what Hebrews 4 says. He can sympathize with our weakness. How would your prayer life change overnight when you start seeing Jesus like this? Coming to the high priest who knows, God, you know what I'm going through right now. You know my fears, my doubts, my hopes, my dreams. You know that I, I'm having a hard time loving someone. I'm, 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 I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling with, with, with whatever the, the problem is, whatever the struggle is. And just to hear the voice of Jesus say, I know. I've been there. Think about that. Every time you pray, Jesus goes, I know I've been there. It's brutal. The world is brutal. Life is hard, isn't it? Hey, I know what it's like for your, your friends to abandon you. Been there. I know. So in the, in the, in, in the incarnation, Jesus shows that he's a God who pursues us. In the incarnation, it shows us he's a, he's a God who identifies with us. But he's also a God, in Jesus' incarnation, it's about a God offering abundant and eternal life. That Jesus offers a different kind of life, a new life. And I, and I know, I think this gets a little confusing sometimes, is when we think about life, eternal life, notice what, what it says in a couple verses here. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not um, overcome it. Look at, um, uh, where are we at here? 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And then if you go down to um, uh, verses 16 and 17, and from him, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What, what, what does that mean? Because I hear, this is what I think people, maybe even outside the church, think, like, when we become Christians, this is what happens. You become a Christian, and then somehow your personality goes away. Like, nothing's funny anymore. Like, nothing. Unless it's, like, Jesus humor or Bible humor. Um, right? We, we somehow, you know, look differently. Right? We wear different clothes, you know. Lord's Gym t-shirt, maybe. We only read, you know, Christian materials, listen to Christian music. But you see, in God's redemption, what he's actually doing is making us more human than we've ever been before. 
He's still working with our humanity. Are you with me? Because in Jesus is life, the life that we always were supposed to have, if you even want to go all the way back to the garden, life with God. So, so when Jesus redeems us, he's, he's making us more human, more full, more, more alive than we've ever been. He gives us a certain kind of quality of life, an eternal life. He opens our eyes. He opens our hearts to see and, and go, this is why the world is the way it is. This is who God is. God is no longer boring. God is no longer just, oh, he's just some guy or some Messiah or some teacher or some example. But he's the, the creator. He's the redeemer. He gives us new eyes to see and to realize that for us to, to not obey his commands is actually to live a less human existence not to live into God's ultimate reality. He's designed the world to work in a certain way, and as we push against that, it never goes well for us. So Jesus in his incarnation is making us alive, more alive than we've ever been. It's the the John 3, the born-again language. It's creation language. You know, Nicodemus, you remember the Nick at night? You know, so famous, right? He comes and he's just like, tell me how... Tell me, good teacher, what, what do I do to inherit life? And, and he says, well, you need to be born again. And he's going, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, I know you're a smart rabbi, but I've already come out of mama's womb. So you need me to get back in there? That's just weird. He says, no, no, no. You need to be born by the Spirit of God. You need to be reborn. You need to have a life that is a life above all lives, a new way of life, a quality of life in me. You need to have new affections, new desires, a new salvation, but it has to come by the Spirit. It has to come by supernatural. You can't get back in your mama's womb. But you can be born from above by God. And you can enter into a new way of life. It's a little bit what Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 2. We all know this chapter, right? That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were the nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says there's a, there's a former way of life, that all of your desires, the flesh, it's, this is your, your hard wiring from the womb. It's your, it's your motherboard and your computer, if you will. That all these desires, all these f- affections, all the ways you live your life, all the ways you think about who you are and think about the world were, were dead set against God until something miraculous happened to you. And that's where we go to the Verse 4, but God, most astounding phrase in all of Scripture, being rich in mercy because of this great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. So if you're not in Christ, you're dead man walking. You haven't become a real human yet. 
And I know that sounds really harsh, but that's the, that's the language that Paul's using. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's, there's two kinds of lives. Like you can just live your life. You can go and get a job and have mar- get married and, and do your deal and, and, and live it up. Death, die, taxes, you know, retire, whatever it is. But there's another kind of life that I'm offering you that, that you are born again by the Spirit of God. That those desires and those affections and that default mode of the flesh that wants nothing to do with God and doesn't want to love God and doesn't want to love their neighbor. I'm going to reset that in you and I'm going to make you alive so that you would have eternal life, a new kind of life. And as Paul will say in other places, I'm going to make you a new creation. And I love that language. Why? Because we're not just born as image bearers. That's the first birth. But the second birth is new creation. And now we live in a whole different way. We're whole different people, different desires, different affections. That, and, and again, I, I know when we hear that, we just go, oh, sheesh, I don't know how different my life is. But you see, that's the sanctifying process of God by his Holy Spirit. It's slow and painful. Any amens? We, just because you're a new creation doesn't mean like, oh, yeah, I just, you know, I mean, I, I, think, I think the last time I sinned was uh, 84. It was a Tuesday. It's a bad day. I said like a Christian cuss word kind of thing. I felt really bad about it. No, God is at work in us, killing, destroying the old man and giving us the new man, the new creation, the new person, a new kind of, we're becoming more human, more full, right? Isn't that why we're going to be resurrected with actual bodies? That Jesus, when he's resurrected from the dead, and we'll get to that in about a week, but when he, he comes to life, he has a body like you and I. He's, he's resurrected from the dead, fully alive, but with this new body, the same body that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that we're going to have these new resurrected bodies. We're not just disembodied souls floating around heaven. But you see, God even now is making us into a new creation now, but we're going to have this new heavenly body that's not going to break down, Right? It's not going to be a body that that when I wake up in the morning and my knee hurts and my wife goes, hey, was that from playing basketball with the kids that you hurt your knee? And I go, no, it's because the comforter's too heavy. And I wish that was a joke in hyperbole and metaphor. It's not. (laughs) Honey, can we talk about the weight of the comforter? Like it's embarrassing, right? Like, I've, you know, blown out shoulders from, like, drinking water. Like, come on. <laughs> and I know a lot of you can relate to that. Like, yard work used to be enjoyable. Not enjoyable anymore. There's, like, a four-day recovery with, like, a lot of physical therapy and a lot of icy hot, which is embarrassing. <laughs> right? Like, oh, I just yeah, I had to trim back some bushes. My back's been a mess for nine days. But you see, we're going to have a, a body that can function fully and be fully alive, that doesn't break down, that isn't weak, that isn't riddled with sin. And you see, Jesus comes to dwell with us. Jesus incarnates himself to come and give us that life, as John would say in 1010, this abundant life as new creations. And it's all made possible by one particular kind of love, a sacrificial love by Jesus laying his life down on a cross for us. Making atonement for all our rebellion, all our sin. Removing the wrath of God from us. 
in calling us sons and daughters of the King. I, I love the way Paul says in Romans 3, that in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have, have failed to honor God, to, to love God, to make his name great. We, we, we're all there, all of humanity, and, and, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And later Paul says in, in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul will say in another place that the Holy Spirit is our deposit guarantee, our inheritance that's already been bought, that we already have a place in heaven. But the Holy Spirit lives in us to continue to remind us that's who we are, that's where we're going. We are new creations. We are God. We, be- we are God's. We belong to God. And his love has been poured out in our hearts. Why? Remember back in Deuteronomy? God loves you not because you're awesome or because you're perfect or because you're moral. He loves you because he loves you. So what does all this mean? What does all this incarnation talk mean? Jesus coming, dwelling with us, sacrificing for us, offering us this new kind of life, identifying with us. What, what does this mean for our living? What does this mean to be an incarnational disciple? How do we, how do we live with God in the world? Now, I'm going to give you just a quick little definition. Then I'm going to give you a couple little applications. And I got this uh, partly from a guy named James Hunter. Um, he wrote a, bo- a book called To Change the World. He's a Christian sociologist, religion pr- professor. Uh, he's written some great things. And he uses this word called faithful presence. And he says it this way. He says, when we talk about what it means to live as God's people and God's uh, church in the world, he calls, we need to be a faithful presence. Why? Because God has been faithful and present to us in the incarnation of Jesus. That's where he builds out that theology. Think about that, that God was perfectly, fully present with humanity, right? God always works in particulars. He doesn't work in generic ways. He comes in the flesh. He actually interacted with people. He saves us as people, as with names and souls and lives, right? God was faithful and committed to his people and to his world, that God so loved the world that he came. And so he says, we're to live as a faithful presence in the world. And I just define it like this. As God has been faithful to us, the church's calling as disciples of Jesus is to be an embodiment of the kingdom of God as faithful presence in every sphere of society. So, so if God is with us, God is living in us and through us, wherever we are, we are to be a faithful presence, an embodiment of God's kingdom, an embodiment of who God is in all of life and every sphere of life. Does that make sense? And here's four specific ways that lives itself out. <clears throat> We're to be faithfully present to God and his worshiping community, the church. As God is present with us by his spirit, we present to him worship. We present to him our our prayers. We fast. We confess sin. We adore our king as we we celebrated that this morning, that God is king. God is ruler. He's ruling and reigning over all things. But we have to live faithfully present before God and before each other. Because God comes and meets us, not just as individuals, but as a body of believers. That's why we've been commanded all these one another's, love one another, pray for one another, encourage 
one another. Don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of, of doing, but gather together because God is going to meet us in those places. But, but we need to be present to each other. And can I just say one thing as we get into a couple of these things is, I'm going to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, and you're just going to be like, oh, great. Can, can we just acknowledge that we're very distracted people because of technology, because of Facebook, because of Twitter, because of media? Now, I'm not vying for Amish country. I'm not saying that. But it takes a lot of work to be present to God and to each other. Don't think you're just going to be just constantly distracted with all kinds of things and and live your life and just kind of squeeze everyone in, in between. It's not going to happen. It takes a prayerful humility to be present to someone sitting across the table with you. To come and gather with God's people. Right? I mean, how many of you were distracted this morning just coming, right? Amens? All right, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Just, I mean, just get the kids out of the door is like a miracle. Like, we should just, like, God, I, I don't know what happens after this, but just to get them out of the door with clothes on, come on. But it takes some work to be present with people. But where two or three are gathered, God is with them. I love what Romans 12 says, that, that we're to be living sacrifices. In view of God's mercies, we're to be living sacrifices. So as we, we see all the mercies of God, all the love of God, all the things that God has done for us in Christ, as we see those, now we submit ourselves as what? Living sacrifices on the altar. Everything I have, everything that I am, I lay down before you, God. In my job, in my work, in my relationships, in my neighborhood, it's all yours. So faithfully present to the worshiping community, also faithfully present to others. That would include the worshiping community, but also those outside of the Christian faith. Again, because we're so distracted and fill our lives with so much stuff, and they're not all bad things, by the way. Right? I mean, most of the things that you fill your life with aren't bad things, unless you're like shooting heroin or something. But, but, mo- but most of the things, right, they're good things, right? Things for our kids, things, right? Hobbies. Not, not, no one's saying get rid of those things. But, but, but what we're saying is that it takes a lot of work to be present to those that don't believe what you believe. Because it's hard and it's scary and it's frightening at times that they may ask you a question you don't have an answer for. You know what I found a really helpful text? And I know you do too. It's from Leviticus 19. You're like, where's Leviticus? I don't even know where Leviticus is. This text has haunted me for many years in a good way. And I don't know where Leviticus is either. To sing the Bible song, sorry. Leviticus 19, 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do you hear what he's saying? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said, right? He's saying if you see a stranger, someone who doesn't believe you, somebody outside the camp, well, how do you love that person? How do you love that person as yourself? You remember that you were a stranger. That's how you do it. And God brought you in. Paul says the same thing in 
Ephesians uh, 2. We were strangers of God, and yet he brought us in. How do we love people that aren't like us, that don't believe with us? We remember our strangeness. And we remember when we were outside the camp. We remember what it was like to not believe. We remember what it was like when God said, you know, you're not welcome because of your sin and rebellion, right? And that's how you, you do this. This is how you love the stranger in our midst, whoever that is. And for some of you, God, help us. It's not even non-Christians. It's other Christians that you're skeptical of. We've got to work on this, church. Like just because they don't maybe say things the way you say or don't read the books that you say, there are actually other Christians other than New City Church. You know that? And I'm thankful for this body because I don't think it's, it's a big issue here, but, but I know we can, we can go there, right? It's, we're, we don't know. Well, I don't know about the, the Lutherans. I don't know, you know about the Baptists. I don't, I don't know about the Pentecostals. They're kind of weird, right? They're always you know, talking about the Holy Spirit. I know it's kind of the weird cousin. I don't know what to do with it. But Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed for unity in the body, that by our unity that people will actually take notice that we are Christians, that we love God. Because you know why? Because unity is not common in our lives, is it? On any level, in your job, wherever you are, unity, it's all disunity, it's all fracture. But, but as God's people come together, and we welcome the stranger because we remember we used to be strangers, that's how you become faithfully present to other people. It's not easy. I'm not saying any of this is. So present to God in his worshiping community, present to others, even those outside, and then present to our tasks. That's very generic, but to our tasks, because I don't want to limit this just to your work. It includes that. Paul, um, another, I think, important text. When we think about our work, when you think about just the daily tasks that you and I have to do, the, the, the things that, that, that God has put before us, um, Colossians 3, um, where are we at here? 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Another great motivating text. Do you see how Paul does that? So brilliant. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. He goes to the future. He says, you want to work hard in what you're doing? You want to take care of kids for the glory of God? You want to be an engineer for the glory of God? Whatever daily task God's uh, given you, the, the, the things around the house, the, the things in your community, the things that God has tasked you with, you want to make great art for the glory of God? He says, remember your inheritance that is coming. And now your motivation isn't even about that work necessarily. It's about glorifying God. But I promise you, when you begin to live like that and think like that and pray like that, you're going to be a different kind of worker. Because you no longer work for the applause of man or you no longer work for simply getting a raise or, or getting power or prestige or rewards. You're actually working for the Lord because I think somehow Paul understands that even in the work itself, no one may even notice it, it glorifies God. Because work is a creation mandate. Work is still good even though it's broken by the, by the fall. It's not something we just put up with. Daily tasks, daily chores, all the things. This is, see, this is why our, our faith can be so boring at times. Is because we relegate it to just our quiet time. 
We were relegated just to coming to church on Sunday. But think about if you actually in every sphere of life, it was how do I glorify God in my work? How do I glorify God when work is horrible and terrible in my parenting, in my marriage? How do I, how do I make much of God as I walk across the street and invite someone to, to church with these new fancy business cards? The reason you and I get bored is because a lot of things doesn't require any kind of faith. What if they reject me? What if they say unkind things? What if they say stuff on Facebook? Okay. But right, it takes faith. It takes a, a desperate pleading. When your kids are losing their minds, how often do we go to Lord and just say, Lord, I have no love for this child right now. Like none. Like this is a big mistake. That we've chosen this path of so many image bearers of God in our home. Like what were we thinking I mean, this one is screaming, this one is hungry, this one pooped their pants. Like, I, we have no capacity. But Lord, help me. Whatever the task is in the ordinary, everyday task, we can be faithfully present to God and to other people in those tasks. Because God is with us. And then lastly, present to what I call our spheres of social influence. Social influence. Our home, our neighborhood, our work, our associations, our city. Jesus said that we're called to be salt and light. We're called to be a city on a hill as God's people. How do we live as a, as a counterculture? How do we embody the kingdom of God in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace? What does that look like for us? To be true salt and light to the world so that others could see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. And I don't, and I'm just going to say this, don't get mad at me, but it, it doesn't mean putting a Jesus sticker on your laptop. It might include that, but I don't think that's what it means. It means being a man or a woman who does their work with integrity. Being a man or, or a woman or, or a kid in school that, that is helpful, that is a servant, that is forgiving, that is gracious, that is meek, that is gentle, that is humble, that is, is kind. It's being hospitable, opening up your home, opening up your lives, that your home life is a, is a life of grace and not law. That we th- consider others better than ourselves. That it's not just about us and our American dream, but it's about our neighbor across the street. It's going to take on a million different aberrations. It's going to look a million different ways because of your family, your situation, your life, your influence, your work, right? That's why I don't want to make hard and fast rules. But regardless of where you are, you are called to be a faithful president and to be salt and light wherever you are, wherever the church is. Why? Because God is with us and because God is making us new. And as he makes us new, we are to embody the kingdom of God, his values, his ways. And it's messy, and it's hard, and it takes humility, and and it's going to take a lot of prayer and a lot of repentance and a lot of grace. And it's not going to be just an individual thing. It's going to be a community thing. Go back to John 1, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. I found this verse really helpful. 
when John, the writer John, the gospel writer, talks about a different John, John the Baptist, he says, verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. You know where I'm going with that? You're smart. You aren't the light. You bear witnesses to the light. It takes all the pressure off you. Here he is. Here's what he's done. Now, granted, we're called to be salt and light, yes. But we're pointers. We're reflectors in very imperfect ways. As we faithfully lay our lives down before each other, before our families, before our neighborhoods, wherever we find ourselves, we are simply reflectors of the light who has come to make all things new. Amen? Amen. Amen. Every week we have the, the privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to celebrate the light that has come. I, I love the, the way um, John talks about this in John chapter 6, that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Um, that, that anyone that, that eats me will, will, will be satisfied. I, you know, he says, I'm the, uh, I'm the blood. You know, he says, you have to drink my blood. I know that sounds really scary. Um, but, but his blood has been poured out. And he says, I, I'm going to offer you a, 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 a satisfaction. I'm going to quench your thirst spiritually and ultimately in me and my son. That you can't find life. You can't find sustenance. You can't find anything outside of me because I am God who has come into human history. I've made all things. I'm sustaining all things. Everything was made for me and by me. And so when we, we come to the supper, we remember that, that God's broken body by the, by the broken bre- bread and, and God's blood has been short out to, to forgive us, of, poured out to forgive us of all of our sins. But as we, we eat this bread and, and we drink this cup, it's a spiritual nourishing meal. We believe that Jesus is present with us here. That as you eat that bread and as you drink, taste that, that drink is we're reminded that only Jesus can satisfy the longings of the human heart. That we're made for him. Now we know on this side of heaven it's not full. It's incomplete. We know that. But it continually points us to where our hearts and our longings go that it's found in this Messiah who came into human history. So if you're a believer in Christ, please come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. We'll have two... Uh, Lines up in front. We break off a bread, the bread. We dip it in the cup. If you have any kind of allergies or um, nut allergy things, gluten-free situations, um, there's a nut-free, gluten-free bread in the middle. Please feel free to take that. If you're not a believer in Christ, we just want to encourage you to, to look at the, the city life. There's some prayers to kind of think through that. If you want to talk about what that means uh, for Jesus to be your treasure, to be your all in all, we'd love to, to talk with you. Talk with me, please. I'd love, I'd love to do that. Um, so with that, let us, let us pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what the incarnation tells us this morning. That you pursue people even in their sin. That you identify with us. That you give us life, everlasting life, and abundant life. And that you've called us as you live with us, in us and through us to continue to point others to that light and that life. God, help New City be a place where your kingdom is embodied in our lives in real, tangible ways. 
by how we talk, how we act, how we live. That Jesus Christ, the center of human history, creator and redeemer, would be known through us. He'd be known all over our city, all over the world. And that we would be a faithful presence wherever we are because of this Jesus. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Come celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.